I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast, you can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's time for another themed month, as chosen by my commander patrons. At the time of the vote being held, admittedly there was only one, but it's one of the perks of that tier, and I wasn't going to do a Napoleon and start inflating figures just to make the result look more emphatic. The focus this August is therefore Wellington Month. Yes, I can hear the mix of groans and cheers already. I've got a whole host of interviews and discussions lined up for you on a range of topics, but today, in the same fashion as with Napoleon Month, I'm going to give you a brief run-through of the guy's life so that those of you who are unfamiliar can get your bearings before offering some thoughts on the man, his legacy, and so on. Straight away, I want to make an important point. There will be no cult Wellington, either in this episode or across the course of the month. Just as Napoleon got a nuanced and honest treatment back in November, so Wellington will get a balanced treatment. Much though some folks do like to dismiss Brits as Wellington fauners, it is possible to appreciate his successes whilst also deploring his failings. I've made no secret, particularly on other podcasts, of the fact that whilst I respect Wellington's achievements as a commander, there is plenty about his career and his character which should be called out. The bottom line I come back to is the same one I mentioned during Napoleon Month. These people are human. They aren't all hero. They aren't all villain. They're more complex than that and more interesting because of it. Placing them on a pedestal is simply unhealthy and presents a blinkered version of history. So Wellington, who was he? Born Arthur Wesley in 1769, there is even debate about his date of birth. The family stated that it was the 1st of May, but, as Rory Muir has pointed out, other records point to him having been baptised on the 30th of April and born on the 29th. Wellington was, fundamentally, an aristocrat, being born into an Anglo-Irish and, therefore, Protestant aristocratic family. Yet Wellington was not the eldest in his family and, therefore, was not destined to inherit the family title of Mornington. Born to talented violinist and harpsichord player Gerrit Wesley and his wife Anne, nay Hill. Arthur was the sixth of nine children born into the family, though two died in infancy and one in early adulthood. Early life was therefore comparatively comfortable, at least compared to most in society at the time. The Wesley family estate was not vast and the family had hang-ups about the extent to which an estate in Ireland counted for less in the social hierarchy of Georgian society. Mornington died in 1781 and the title passed to Arthur's oldest brother. 
Arthur's early years were not illustrious. It seems that he struggled academically, not really showing a great aptitude for anything, resulting in a mix of concern and frustration from his mother. Eventually, having been withdrawn from Eton, Arthur was sent overseas to study in preparation for a career in the army. Attending the Royal Academy of Equitation at Angers, he worked on his horse riding, but also his language skills, whilst learning to conduct himself like an officer. It worked, and Wesley was delighted by the transformation when he returned to Britain aged 18. A few months before his return, he gained a commission as an ensign in the British Army's 73rd foot. This was an age of promotion by purchase, and the Wesley family ruthlessly exploited it. Having received his first commission in March 1787, by December of the same year, Arthur had a lieutenancy in the 76, transferring to the same rank in the 41st foot a month later, and then a lieutenancy in the 12th Light Dragoons in June 1789, all about kind of spreading, yes, to a degree his, his service, but particularly jumping different places in the ranking of seniority within a regiment in order to be able to purchase that much faster. Exactly two years later, he became a captain in the 58th foot, transferring to the 18th Light Dragoons in October 1792, before becoming major in the 33rd foot in April 1793, and lieutenant colonel of the same regiment in September 1793. Put another way, he climbed five ranks in six years. It was an obviously and inherently flawed system. But Arthur was the rare exception, where the ability to buy your way up the promotional ladder was matched with actual ability. Like so many men in the upper echelons of society, Wellington benefited from his personal connections, enjoying the patronage of none other than the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, serving as his ADC until 1796, though there may have been a gap when Lord Fitzwilliam held the post. In any case, during that period, Wellington was also serving in the Low Countries, demonstrating an ability as a commander of a regiment and having what was probably a formative experience as he witnessed the tribulations and setbacks of the campaign and saw what really didn't work and acquitted himself pretty well. Yet all was not smooth sailing in Wellington's life. In 1793, he had proposed to Lady Catherine Kitty Pakenham, who he'd been courting for about a year. It was rejected on the grounds that Arthur didn't have sufficient prospects for it to be clear that he could support her properly. At this point, he may have started to, create, to take his career more seriously. It's important to emphasise that alongside his military life, he was also pursuing a political one, becoming an MP in the Irish Parliament and in 1790 MP at Westminster for Trim. Rejection from the Pakenham family coincided with more activity in his professional career. Arthur's health seemed to have suffered from his time in the Netherlands, and he was not with his regiment when it initially set sail for the West Indies in the autumn of 1795, therefore escaping the wrecking on Chesil Beach of several of the transports. Although he was subsequently to sail with the uh, flotilla, bad weather turned the ships back, and in April 1796, Wellesley's, Wellesley's rather, unit was reassigned for service in India, sailing in June 1796. I have a whole interview coming on Wellington's career in India, so we'll resist a detailed run-through of his life during this stage, but it was a key stepping stone in his efforts to make his name and his fortune. There can be no question that his career benefited massively from the fact that shortly after Arthur's arrival, none other than his brother, Lord Wellington, was appointed Governor-General of India. This was an age of patronage, and there were few better ways to benefit from such a system than working to fulfil the wider aims of your own brother and taking the opportunities that that offered. There is a time and a place for discussion of the British in India, but this isn't really it. I am no great advocate of the empire or many of the actions and atrocities that were committed in almost two centuries of British control of India. To answer the inevitable question, was Wellington a racist? I would personally say no. I've never seen any convincing evidence to suggest that he was. Some might argue that he was involved in the expansion of the British Empire, and therefore must have been. I would disagree on two counts. Firstly, he was not the person making the final decisions on British policy in India, much though he did try to influence and advise his brother. Ultimately, he was there as a soldier, with orders to follow. Secondly, 
it's important to acknowledge the way in which the motives behind the growth of the British Empire changed over time. The notion of Britain on a inverted commas civilizing mission and what Rudyard Kipling termed the burden of white men emerge much later in the course of the 19th century. What drives expansion in India is, initially at least, ultimately greed. There's no sugar coating that, but fighting with a mixed race army of British regular and East India Company sepoy troops, there is nothing to suggest that race affected how Wellington approached his job in India. Wellington benefited massively from his deployment in India. Initially out there as a colonel, he was given command of what proved to be one of the few botched engagements of his career, a night assault on a position outside Seringapatam. In fairness, the method of the assault had been chosen for him, so not 100% on him in terms of planning, and he missed the reinforcements ending up coming back to camp, though not having the tantrum that some sources have claimed. He took the position easily the next day, but if we're going to flag the successes, we must also flag failures such as those. After the siege of Seringapatam, he was appointed governor, something which annoyed his superior General David Baird, though Arthur was probably the wiser choice from a diplomatic perspective. Wellesley, the family name had been changed by that point, also acquired some £4,000 in prize money. That's about three hundred grand in today's money. He owed a good chunk of it to his brother, who had loaned him the money to buy his way up the ranks, but Mornington refused to take it. The Second Maratha War, which I recently discussed with Josh Prognan in an interview for his book, you can find it in the Napoleonist's back catalogue of episodes, was pivotal for making Wellington's name. There's no sense in me giving chapter and verse on what was discussed on here so recently, but the capture of Ahmed Nagar, the defeat of the Marathas at Asai and Arguam, and the capture of Gawalgur led to Wellesley's role being wrapped up successfully in a matter of months. Wellesley returned home to England in 1805, having been made Sir Arthur the previous August, and amassing a remarkable £42,000 of personal fortune. That's 3.2 million quid. He was also a major general, though by no means a household name. In April 1806, he married Kitty Pakenham, but the decision may have owed much more to the matchmaking of Olivia Sparrow rather than the devotion of either of them to the other. Kitty had at one stage been betrothed to someone else in the intervening 12 years, but had broken it off. Wellington supposedly remarked that she had grown rather plain. She had suffered, suffered um, with her mental health at one stage, and that had had an impact on, on her health more generally. Nonetheless, their first son Arthur was born in February 1807, and their second Charles in January 1808. During that time, Wellesley had acted as Chief Secretary of Ireland, though he was frank that his military career came first in his mind, and he participated in the British expedition to Copenhagen, in which the British effectively stole the Danish fleet in order to prevent it from falling into Bonaparte's hands, firebombing the Danish capital in the process. While Wellington was not involved in the, or was not in charge of the decision-making on the bombardment of the city, he did defeat a diversionary force at Kyoga, I've probably ruined the pronunciation, apologies to any Danish listeners, on the 29th of August 1807. It was hardly a glorious affair. The Danish force consisted of significant amounts of militia, some of whom were apparently so poorly equipped that they still had their wooden clogs on their feet. The big break, of course, came in 1808. Wellington had been advising the British government on an expedition to South America to wrest control of colonies in the region from Spanish grasp, and was poised to sail in the near future when news arrived of the Spanish uprising against French occupation in the summer of 1808. Wellesley's 9,000-strong force was therefore dispatched not to the New World, but to the Old, sailing from Cork in July, and after Spanish officials in Galicia waved him off, he landed at Mondigo Bay in Portugal, swiftly winning at Relithia and Vermeiro, though being superseded at the point of victory in the latter, and prevented from following up the advantage he had gained, much to his frustration. There followed the controversial Convention of Sintra, a ceasefire which secured the liberation of Portugal, but allowed the French to be evacuated back to France on British ships, carrying much of their loot with them. Dissatisfied, though obliged to sign it, Wellesley secured permission to return home, where he testified before an investigation on the convention and ultimately cleared himself of any wrongdoing. He was the only general involved in the affair to be employed on active service again. The next few years of Wellesley's life 
are essentially intrinsically intertwined with the history of the Peninsular War, elements of which have been discussed on the podcast or will be in future episodes. To give you the very barest of rundowns, in April 1809, Wellesley was sent back to Portugal, secured a victory over the French at Porto, liberating the country for the second time before advancing into Spain. The Talavera campaign, as it became known, was beset with problems regarding cooperation with the Spanish, promised transport support for the supplies, failed to materialise, affecting his ability to feed the troops. Battle at Talavera in July 1809 offered limited strategic advantage. Most of the fighting fell on the British, as Wellesley deliberately gave the Spanish the most sheltered positions in the line. The French, under Victor, were defeated and withdrew, though it cost Wellesley about a third of his army. The victory was rendered strategically useless, however, by the descent of a separate French army from the north, which was trying to cut his lines of communication with Portugal, and he had little choice but to withdraw back to the region near Badajoz. Limited fighting was seen for almost a year, yet Wellington, he had obtained his title Viscount Wellington of Talavera for his role in the victory, was not idle, setting about building the lines of Torres Vedras as a means of ensuring that when the French reinvaded, and he considered it almost inevitability, he had a safe place of retreat. When the French did duly invade in 1810 with a force under Marshal Massena, he faced and defeated the French at Basaco before pulling back to the lines of Torres Vedras. As the French eventually evacuated Portugal in early 1811, their rearguard checked Wellington's pursuits. Some folks like to hold these up as crushing defeats. They frankly weren't. The French continued their withdrawal, but Ney did a deeply impressive job with the rearguard of fending off the Allies, much to Wellington's frustration. 1811 was essentially a year of stalemate, with a narrow victory at Fuente do Nuro in May, probably the closest Wellington ever came to a proper defeat, and Albuera, where Wellington was not in command, but the Allies were severely bloodied. 1812 was the decisive year, with the capture of the Spanish border fortresses of Theodad Rodrigo in January and Badajoz in April, both followed by plunder and taken at considerable cost. Salamanca in July saw Marmont, who had taken command from Messena after Fuente do Nuro, comprehensively beaten, and the French sent reeling back to the north, paving the way for the liberation of Madrid in August. Yet the autumn of 1812 saw the French commanders in Spain begin to unify in the face of the threat that Wellington and his Anglo-Portuguese army posed. After a botched siege of Burgos, he was woefully underprepared and should never have been sucked into trying to take the place, but sieges were never Wellington's strong point, he was forced to make a hurried withdrawal to the Spanish-Portuguese border. But 1812 had tipped the balance, especially since Napoleon began to withdraw troops to rebuild the army that he had driven to destruction in Russia. 1813 saw a blistering advance into the heart of Spain, repeatedly turning the French flank until they finally offered battle at Vitoria in June, where he again defeated them. This was the last straw, really, for French control of Spain, bar toeholds in Pamplona and San Sebastian, and Suchet's force in Valencia. The French were effectively evicted from the country, and it also brought Wellington his marshal's baton. Sewell was sent to try and retake the offensive against Wellington, but ultimately was defeated at the Battle of the Pyrenees. San Sebastian was taken in September, and the Anglo-Spanish-Portuguese troops were the first of coalition forces onto French soil in years, in the autumn of 1813. 1814 brought further successes, as Wellington cautiously applied pressure in the south, ultimately ending at Toulouse in April, a battle fought just days before news that Napoleon had agreed to sign an armistice arrived. With the war seemingly over, Wellington turned his mind to politics again, being appointed British ambassador to Paris in April 1814. He returned to England in June, seeing his family for the first time since he had sailed to Portugal in 1809. He hadn't seen his children or his wife in five years, and that distance certainly hadn't helped the relationship with either. By February of 1815, he was taking his place at the Congress of Vienna. Yet, as we know, Napoleon wasn't done, returning to usurp the Bourbon monarchy and instigating the War of the Seventh Coalition. The Waterloo campaign followed, and I'll spare you a rundown of what happened there, and instead direct you to the several thousand books and several hundred podcast episodes that are out there on the battle. Spoiler alert, the Allies won. Wellington went on to command the Army of Occupation, a force which was ultimately withdrawn after just three years, far earlier than was initially intended, and a move which Wellington was partially responsible for. As Beatrice de Graaf has shown, Wellington played a 
role in trying to establish a more stable European order, not only as a diplomat, but also in the building of fortifications along the French border as a buffer against future invasion. It was virtually inevitable that a man who had become the most successful British general of his age was going to end up with a position in government, and he was appointed Master General of Ordnance in 1818. It is sometimes said that Wellington was ambivalent about politicians, which is true, and that he only served out of a sense of duty. I'm a bit more sceptical on that second part. He'd engaged with politics from the earliest possible opportunity and used it to forward his career and actively advised the government on many occasions. Militarily, his future was absolutely secure, so political advancement was an obvious next step. No, he didn't gel with politicians in the way that he perhaps could with soldiers, and certainly when it came to being Prime Minister, he really wasn't ready for the challenge. I'm no great fan of Wellington's career as a politician. Speaking on History Hack, I likened it to the last season of Game of Thrones. Moments of brilliance, but generally a crushing disappointment. The difficult relationship between Wellington and Canning meant that Wellington resigned as Master General of Ordnance and Commander-in-Chief when Canning sought to form a government following Lord Liverpool's stroke in 1827. He returned to the post after Canning's death, but then resigned again upon becoming Prime Minister the following year. You can't discuss Wellington's premiership without talking about Catholic emancipation. I mentioned this online recently and kicked up quite a furore, especially when I remarked that this showed Wellington's integrity. Catholic emancipation is a long and complex story. It's important to emphasise that emancipation was more of a process than an individual act, which preceded Wellington's premiership, and of course derogatory attitudes towards Catholics didn't end with the Emancipation Act. An equivalent in Ireland in 1793 had granted Catholics the franchise in Ireland, and this had been preceded by a bill to allow Catholics to worship freely in 1791. Nonetheless, Catholics could not, according to the law at least, enter Parliament or hold public office, in part due to an anti-Catholic oath which had to be taken. And of course, just lying and taking the oath regardless wasn't really an option because it was both illegal and meant denigrating your own religion at a time when religion was far more central as an element to most people's lives than it is today. The issue was, of course, forced upon the government by Irish orator Daniel O'Connell, who had stood in the County Clare by-election in 1828 and refused to take his seat until the oath was rescinded in law. Wellington and Robert Peel therefore set about drafting the Catholic Emancipation Bill, and having seen a draft of the bill in Wellington's papers, it's very clear that he played an active role in its framing, crossing out entire sections, and reframing them, such was the Duke's nature. The act led to what I always consider to be a pretty hypocritical incident in Wellington's career, his duel with the Earl of Winchelsea. Winchelsea accused the Duke of an insidious design for the infringement of our liberties and the introduction of popery into every department of the state. This was an insult, fundamentally, on Wellington's honour, and the usual way of dealing with such a thing was to demand satisfaction in the form of a duel, especially if the insulter was unwilling to apologise. Wellington and Winchelsea therefore met at Battersea Fields. Wellington fired first, missed, he admitted himself that it was a rubbish shot with a pistol, and Winchelsea fired into the air. His second had actually only agreed to support him, if Winchelsea committed to not fire on the Duke. There is also an interesting point here about honour and masculinity. In some circles, it was considered dishonourable to actually aim to kill your opponent, which therefore turned duels into something of an absurd charade. Not all duels, however, contained such limited risks. Why did I suggest that this, this was hypocritical, though? Well, if Wellington had been a private citizen, it wouldn't have been. But he wasn't. He was a soldier. He still held commission in the army, and officers were forbidden from duelling. Wellington had signed off on court-martial proceedings where officers were tried for the crime. He'd commented on them, and yet here he was, doing precisely what he had lambasted others for. The flip side, of course, is that it could be argued Wellington had little choice. Had he failed to respond, his honour and integrity as a man would have been called into question by society. Yet he was also Prime Minister, and had he been injured or killed at that point, when divisive legislation was going through Parliament, it could have created a myriad of problems. 
The bill was passed into law in 1829, allowing Catholics to enter Parliament and hold all but a few public positions. Yet, as I say, I caused a bit of a stink on Twitter a couple of weeks ago when I suggested that the passing of the Act showed Wellington's integrity. People pointed out that it was forced upon him by circumstances. Completely true. So, why integrity? Well, essentially, the King threatened to refuse to sign it into law, in part because, as head of the Church of England, he argued that it contravened his coronation oath. Wellington responded by threatening to resign, which saw the matter off, and the King duly signed. Essentially, Wellington averted a constitutional crisis and saw that the right thing was done by the Catholics and Parliament. Partly, that was, of course, pragmatism, but it shows Wellington's sense of public duty, which was not dictated by blind loyalty to the King or to himself in his own career, but the wider public, an odd stance for a man who passionately disapproved of the mob. And that important caveat leads us to the next logical point of discussion, the Great Reform Bill. This is unquestionably the low point of his career, though not all that surprising if people are familiar with his aristocratic attitudes. Democracy in Britain during this time was barely worthy of the name, and you could argue that it was actually worse than the system that existed in Napoleon's France. That's fair to a point in that the French enjoyed universal male suffrage, but as I've argued in the past, if a system is rigged with inflated totals to make results look more emphatic, how truly democratic is it? In a way, therefore, it was as flawed as the borough system in Britain unquestionably was. The distribution of seats was unequal across boroughs and population. Areas with very small populations could elect MPs, whilst whole towns couldn't elect any. The franchise was also restricted to the wealthy, which essentially ensured that the interests of the rich were foremost in the minds of MPs. Wellington passionately opposed parliamentary reform. He was a man of the Ancien Régime and a Tory through and through, and thought widening the franchise would have a destabilising effect on the country. It is possible to question whether this was a hangover from the days of the French Revolution and a fear of opening the floodgates to radical reform by the lower orders. I'm not going to make excuses for him. He wasn't a Democrat. His position was out of touch with the time, and when it became apparent that there was a desire within his own party for a limited change to the franchise and a wider system, he did pretty much the best thing and only thing that was acceptable and resigned. Whig Prime Minister Lord Grey, who formed a government where the Tories were ousted as a result of the resignation in 1832, was subsequently able, after two failed attempts admittedly, to get the Reform Act passed in 1832. It had its faults, for sure, not least the explicit exclusion of women from the franchise, and suffrage was by no means universal. Householders had to pay £10 yearly in rent to be eligible. But it was an important step in the right direction, and one that couldn't have happened with Wellington in office. Wellington's later life saw his reputation rehabilitated once the dust had settled from his opposition to the Reform Act. As an elder statesman, his views were held in high regard, and he was actually appointed caretaker Prime Minister when, in 1834, the King dismissed the Whigs. Rather than become PM himself, which was perhaps an option, Wellington sat in for Peel, who was in Italy, until his colleague had returned, becoming Foreign Secretary in Peel's cabinet and leader of the House of Lords. For a variety of reasons, Wellington's decision actually made Peel's life harder. He effectively had little choice but to accept the premiership at a difficult time. Peel might have wanted to say no, but didn't have that option once Wellington had accepted on his behalf. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
and with Parliament being dispersed for an election, he couldn't explain his policies. Added to that was the fact that Wellington had basically hacked off some of the MPs that Peel wanted to recruit. But generally, Wellington adopted what could be termed a second-in-command role in politics from this point on, supporting but not forcing the issue. In 1842, he again was appointed Commander-in-Chief when Hill, who had succeeded him initially when he became PM, had died. The jury is definitely out on Wellington's time as CNC, something which actually surprised me when I started discussing this with folks ahead of writing this episode. We'll delve further into this in the course of the month, as there are better placed folks than me, frankly, who can offer their thoughts on it. But my sense, having read Hugh Strawn's book on the topic and found it fairly convincing, is that arch-conservative Wellington came to the fore during this period. He saw little reason to reform the army that had defeated Napoleon, and this led to reluctance to adopt new reforms of weaponry, and, of course, he was a staunch advocate of flogging to the end. He also opposed the creation of a chief of staff and the reform of the complicated administration process within the army. However, others have actually suggested that a lot of those reforms were measures beyond his control and remit, and instead were the failures of civil servants rather than Wellington himself. I would leave you to decide at the end of the month where you feel the responsibility lies. Toward the end of his life, Wellington suffered a series of strokes in 1839, 1840 and 41. He ultimately died on the 14th of September 1852 at Warmer Castle, having suffered another stroke earlier that day. He was buried at St Paul's Cathedral with a huge fanfare, including a vast procession train, which an estimated 1.5 million people turned out to watch. For all his conservatism and the opposition and ire he had generated for his views during the Great Reform Crisis, Wellington was deeply mourned upon his death. No assessment of Wellington would be complete without a look at his private life. Apsley House are going to disagree with me on this, I know this because they've already told me, but my opinion is that Wellington was essentially a pretty rubbish husband. He was a serial adulterer, and there was no subtlety or hiding of that adultery. He and Kitty were not well suited, which was obviously part of the problem. He claims his friend, Harriet Abathnoe, who, contrary to speculation, was not his mistress, that he had tried to live on friendly terms with her, but he had been driven to seek abroad the happiness which he could not find at home. Kitty came across as possessive. Arthur considered her vain and lacking in the sharp wit which he prized so highly amongst his friends and lovers. At the very end of Kitty's life, when she died in 1831, though, Wellington came to her bedside and there was a curious moment of sentimentality. She ran a finger up his sleeve, looking to see if he was wearing an armlet that she'd given him. He was. He'd been wearing it for 20 years. It's a curious contradiction that Arthur should have been sufficiently caring to have carried that with him all of this time, and yet not been faithful to his marriage vows. Of course, part of the reasoning for that lies in the morals of the time. Affairs were frequent, much more so for men than women, although admittedly it does take two to tango. People will no doubt say that dragging Wellington over the coals for his infidelity is unfair. This was just what men did back then. We must judge people by the standards of the time. Yet, as I've discussed in other episodes, whilst we must temper our assessments to use that line of reasoning to understand an individual's behaviour, that doesn't mean that we should excuse it or pretend that it didn't happen. This goes back to my antipathy about putting historical figures on a pedestal. We have to acknowledge the good alongside the bad, and a warts and all, calling out of behaviour, is an important element of that. We shouldn't, in my view, hold Wellington up as a shining example as a figure of history, encouraging people to admire his achievements, without being frank with ourselves about all aspects of his life and nature. Let's move on then to consider that wider picture. How should we assess Wellington? In one sense, this is quite easy. Incredible soldier, mediocre to poor politician but that doesn't offer us much in terms of understanding, so let's break it down. Wellington was one of the great soldiers of the age. The inevitable question is, was he the greatest? Well, he got the better of everyone who Napoleon sent to deal with him, and it's worth considering the ability of some of those men. Victor, Ney, Marmont, and particularly Messena and Sue. The last two, 
are ranked amongst some of Napoleon's best subordinates. The two question marks are Davout and Napoleon. I'm going to park Davout. I know that sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but ultimately you have to ask yourself there whether Wellington was capable of pulling off an Auerstadt. That's not something that we can ever truly know, because he never had to do it. But there's nothing obvious to suggest that the answer was no, he couldn't do it. We could, and may well yet debate that, and I'm happy for people to dispute that with me. That's part of the fun, and it's an interesting discussion. But it's a difficult one to, to argue without emphatic proof one way or the other. Was he better than Napoleon? Brace yourselves for this one, because it will surprise you. Probably not. Wellington never had an Austerlitz. Salamanca, in my opinion, was the closest he'd got. In part, this is all down to Wellington's style. He was more about meticulous planning of the microscopic details, and that therefore meant that, on many occasions, he was less in need of improvising. On the occasions where he did improvise, and this is where the Salamanca comparison becomes useful, we still see Wellington the careful micromanager who has everything in hand. In many ways, that's a huge strength, and this will always be a tough one to judge, because for much of Wellington's career, he was dealing with much smaller forces than Napoleon wielded. But ultimately, I would say this. Napoleon on his best day was more than a match for Wellington on his best day. Sure, there's Waterloo, but let's not pretend that Napoleon was at his best at Waterloo, or that the spoils go solely to Wellington for that victory. More on that in a bit. What is perhaps more interesting, though, is why was Wellington so successful? The boring but truthful answer is attention to detail. He was the ultimate micromanager and an undisputed workaholic. His letters held at the University of Southampton's Hartley Library offer emphatic proof of both the clarity of his mind and his ability to process the macro and the micro almost simultaneously. He could turn from writing a dispatch to the Secretary of State for War on the progress of the campaign to a letter to an adjutant on the proportion of oats that should go into horses' feed to then reviewing court-martial proceedings and determining whether a judgment was legal before then sending orders to one of his divisional commanders giving them precise instructions on what they should do, where they should march um, and what should happen in the result of various eventualities unfolding. In one sense, that's perhaps the most valuable lesson from Wellington's story. There is no substitute to sheer hard work if you want to be successful. On the battlefield, he was exceptional at reading terrain. That's nothing unique. All good commanders have to be able to do that. But it was a skill that not all of his contemporaries shared. Was he lucky? Oh, occasionally, yes, absolutely. See that escape of disaster at Fuente Don Euro, for example, and Messina's reluctance or refusal or... or Sheer missing the missing the opportunity to to push that advantage. Again, all commanders need to have a degree of luck, but more often than not, I would argue that Wellington actually manufactured his own luck. Opportunities that arose often did so because of precise planning to engineer a scenario that he could capitalize on. Oporto springs to mind there, and he was also unlucky. He was never able to plan his way into a situation where he could annihilate a French army, no matter how hard he tried. And this is why he doesn't have an Austerlitz moment. No matter how hard his men fought, Vittoria, Salamanca, Vermiro are all classic examples where other situations intervene to prevent him from achieving that all-conquering success that he was after. As a commander, Wellington was an exacting taskmaster. It is well known that he disparaged his men as the scum of the earth, a comment that he made on multiple occasions, and undoubtedly believed to a significant extent, although the relationship there was far more complex. There's an hour-long episode on that in the Napoleonist's back catalogue, so I won't delve into it again here. To his officers, he could be cordial. He had a pretty open table for dinner, and he valued the competence of individuals above all things. Though it has to be said that Wellington preferred talent with a title, i.e. members of the aristocracy, to talent without. He was not prone to displays of affection. He did not embrace or even closely interact with his soldiers on a personal level, in stark contrast there to Napoleon. That doesn't mean that he was indifferent to them, though. 
it was a relationship to a degree based on both sides upon trust, respect and reliance of the other to do their duty. Wellington was, above all, concerned with supplying his men as well as the circumstances would allow and using them in situations where the maximum advantage could be derived. That frugality with his men's lives stood in contrast to Napoleon, who confessed on occasion to thinking nothing of huge losses if it achieved his aims. In part, that difference was, as Wellington himself confessed in the winter of 1810-11, because the army he commanded was the last army that Britain had left, and it needed to be protected. Yet there was also emotion beyond that practicality. After the siege of Badajoz, he famously wept whilst walking the breaches and seeing the dead, something that his subordinate, Thomas Picton, found impossible to understand. Some have suggested that he was vindictive. I don't personally agree. The incident of the escape of the French garrison at Almeida in 1811 and the very sad suicide of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Bevan, because he felt that he had been implicated and didn't have the opportunity to exonerate himself, is sometimes cited as evidence of that. Whilst Wellington was a cutting individual, a sarcastic individual unquestionably at times, and, and could be incredibly cold, on that occasion he did not single out Bevan specifically. The reason why Bevan's request for an inquiry was declined was so that the army could move on after a sorry incident, and it has to be acknowledged that Bevan had a history of mental health issues. Wellington could be cold and cutting and sarcastic as I say, but I honestly don't see petty vendettas being his thing. Among other things, he was just too busy running the army. As to his wider character, I've said many times, Wellington was a snob. He had no love of the lower classes and actively opposed expanding the franchise. He could be generous, just as he could be cold and scathing, intelligent and witty, accomplished and with a great sense of duty. He was widely regarded as one of the foremost men of his age at the time of his death. He was by no means a perfect individual, an easy man to like, but I suspect a difficult one to love. I want to take a few moments now to debunk some frankly irritating myths about Wellington and cover a few other comments that are, with the best word in the world, just demonstrable nonsense. Top of the list has to be, Wellington was a defensive general. Ugh, how many times have I had to uh, cover that with folks? Well, Wellington did, yes, win defensive battles. There was a phase in the Peninsular War where he sat on the defensive and let the French come to him, because strategically, that was a viable option. So sure, Vermeiro, 1808, Talavera, 1809, Basako, 1810, Fuente Don Euro, 1811, Sororan, 1813, and yes, Waterloo, 1815, were all defensive victories. But let's just take a moment to balance that out. Asai, Relithia, Oporto, Salamanca, Vittoria, Toulouse, all offensive. The perception was originally a French one. By the middle of the Peninsula War, it had been realised that it was a bad idea to attack Wellington on ground of his own choosing, and of course Waterloo cemented the legend. There's another point to make though. Apart from being plain wrong and missing the fact that Wellington was as dangerous on the offensive as he was on the defensive, why should being a capable defensive commander be a bad thing? Sure, it contrasts with Napoleon, who is famous for a more aggressive style, but defence in the right time and place has its advantage. It often is a sign of wishing to be more conservative with the lives of your men. It also indicates an ability to read your enemy, to know their intentions both at a tactical and strategic level, and to play that to your own advantage. Wellington is branded as defensive as if it's some kind of insult. It's not. It's plain wrong. But the implication that being able to defend is a bad thing is just odd. We also have just mentioned the W word, Waterloo. Wellington was saved at Waterloo, claims some. In a word, no. I've covered this elsewhere, but in a nutshell, there was a fight combined strategy that Wellington and Blücher agreed to long before Napoleon went on the offensive in June 1815. When Wellington and Blücher met near Ligny on the 16th of June, Wellington agreed to march to Blücher's aid if he could, fight combined still underpinning their strategy. On the 17th of June, Blücher made a commitment to march to support Wellington if the Anglo-Dutch army stood and fought. They agreed, so Blücher came. That was not a case of getting lucky, that's a case of excellent planning in difficult circumstances. Wellington was the bait, 
Blücher was the snare, and Napoleon fell wholesale into the trap. Did Wellington defeat Napoleon? Only to the same extent that Blücher did. Without either one of them, there was no Allied victory at Waterloo. It was a combined Allied victory, a coalition victory, neither wholly British, nor Prussian, nor Dutch. This leads to another common complaint that I hear screamed on some online forums. Wellington always fought with allies. And? Genuinely, so what? Seriously, I've never got the point of that one. Britain had a small standing army. There are historical reasons for that relating to the antipathy that the Brits held towards large standing armies, which goes back to the English Civil War in the 17th century. Britain therefore played an active role in supporting other nations with grievances against Napoleon and worked with them where it could by putting troops in the field. The Portuguese army was completely retrained under the British system and using British money with phenomenal results. If Wellington made use of allies, that is surely an indication of someone who can not only grasp the reality of the strategic situation, but also has the diplomatic ability to work with commanders of other nationalities. Those aren't failings, they're assets. If I started trying to, to claim that Napoleon was a worse commander for building a coalition force in the form of his 1812 Grand Armée, I would expect to be laughed out of the room. The Allies thing is just, I'm sorry, nonsense. Wellington ran away a lot, claim some of his most ardent detractors. Since when was a strategic withdrawal a bad thing? Consider this, which is worse, to fight it out in the desperate hope of winning, using your men's lives as dice in a desperate gamble when you've been outmaneuvered, or having the awareness to know when not to fight and conduct a prudent withdrawal. Yes, on plenty of occasions Wellington withdrew, but in the process he only ever fought a battle on his own terms, bar the exception of Saul's advance across the Pyrenees. He was never forced into an action by mistake or at a significant disadvantage. He was in control. Sure, that's far less exciting, less dramatic, and shows less sort of spur-of-the-moment flair. But none of those things are what you really want as a soldier in a battle. You want to be fighting at maximum advantage to maximise your chances of winning. Wellington delivered on that point nine times out of ten, and his men knew it. Of course, I can't wrap this up without giving you some reading recommendations. If you've listened to this podcast, you'll know by now that I am a huge fan of Rory Muir's work, so this isn't going to come as a shock to you. Rory Muir's two-volume biography, Wellington, The Path to Victory, and Wellington, Waterloo, and the Fortunes of Peace, are frankly the Bibles. They are peerless. Yes, they're lengthy at 800 pages each or thereabouts, but they're very reasonably priced. You can get them from Yale University Press or the Napoleonist Bookstore. Check the link in the description. And they're effortless reads. If you only want to read about Wellington once in your life, take the time to read those and you won't be disappointed. Obviously, not everyone has the time or inclination to invest that much of their life into Wellington. Understand that. But the good news is that there are other decent options on the market. Elizabeth Longford was the go-to before Rory Muir's work hit the market. Longford also wrote two volumes, dividing her work along the lines of Wellington's military career and his political career, but the two are commonly found now in one volume printed by Abacus. Richard Holmes's Wellington the Iron Duke is actually a really nice starting point for anyone who wants a relatively shorter but highly entertaining read. It's not deep in its detail, but not everyone wants to fixate deeply on the topic, and it's infinitely preferable to relying on something like Wikipedia. Holmes researched well and wrote exceptionally engagingly, so although some historians would class it as a coffee table history, from a general interest perspective, it's fantastic. On Wellington's nature as commander, I'm going to flag two books for you. George Jaycock's Wellington's Command, a reappraisal of his generalship, is a thought-provoking read. In places it feels almost tentative, as if George is concerned that the weight of cot Wellington is about to come crashing down upon him. He makes some pretty reasonable critiques of Wellington's style, highlighting some important flaws, and it's nice to have that corrective to anyone who suggests that the Duke was a flawless general. Hugh Davies wrote Wellington's Wars, The Making of a Military Genius, which is also worth a read. I'm always a bit ambivalent about words like genius because we then start to get into discussions about hero worship, and that can be unhelpful. I just don't like putting anyone on a pedestal. Hugh makes some legitimate points, though, 
about what Wellington made work, not least the supply element, and tracks the origins of the successful elements of Wellington's style. It's also very readable, so well worth the time invested. So if you've been inspired to read further on the ideas in this episode, why not support independent bookstores and your boy producing this podcast by buying them via the Napoleon Assist bookshop. Click the link in the description and you'll find a vast range of titles that will be of interest. There's a specific subsection actually on giving you a list of uh, Wellington-based titles. And in the process, independent booksellers get a cut and the Napoleon Assist also gets a cut. So there are many who benefit. I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those of you who don't want to make a regular contribution, which I completely understand, but do perhaps want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist via Ko-fi, the link is in the description, and know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of your tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going through their generous subscriptions. A particular thanks to my Commander Patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my Mentioned in Dispatches Patrons, Alexandra Lyon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice de Graff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill and Rob Griffith. There are a few perks for supporters, including a discount code from Pen and Sword, and Commander patrons get to influence these themed months. In fact, voting is open for the next themed month right now. So if you want to dictate where this podcast goes in the future, check out the link in the description for more details. Join me in a few days' time when Wellington Month will continue. It's a busy schedule with four episodes already in the bag and a number of others in the process of being scheduled. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.